0: Chapter 16 of the Escape of a Princess Pat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Escape of a Princess Pat by George Pearson. Chapter 16. The Third Escape. Simmons and I had been planning on another escape ever since our recapture, so we kept on our good behaviour while we saved up for food for Durtach, We had hitherto refused to work, as had the remaining Britishers, but in order to keep ourselves fit, we finally volunteered to carry the noon ration of soup out to the Russians, who worked on the moor. Our job consisted of carrying an immense can of soup, swung high on a pole from our shoulders, out to the workers, under guard, of course, starting at eleven each day, and, by permission of the guard, occasionally resting, we were usually back by one o'clock. Each day we saved a portion of our food. We wanted twenty days' rations each, estimating that it would take us that long to walk to Holland. We specialised on concentrated foods from our parcels biscuits, tinned meats, and so on. We had our cash in a hole dug under cover of night, under the flooring of the hut. It was unsafe to keep our food on our bodies or near our beds as the guards were in habit of calling the rouse at all hours, and sometimes several times during the night. It may be twelve, two, or four, although it was never alike on any two nights in succession, except that they always searched us. We could see no reason for this, other than to break our rest, and perhaps our spirits, as at Geisen camp. Certainly no one would carry any forbidden thing on his person under such surveillance and they well knew we could hide anything we wished in other places, as we did. Each Saturday morning, Simmons and I paraded for paint. We stood while a big Russian, with a brush and bucket, painted large red and green circles on our breasts, backs, and knees. Thin stripes were also painted down the seams of our trousers and sleeves, and around the stiff crowns of our caps. This was to mark us as dangerous characters, "'As such, we received more of the unwelcome Rouse's attentions "'than the others, and were the more wary in consequence. "'We were busy opening our mail in one of those rare occasions "'when Simmons gave a startled exclamation. "'I looked up and saw him, gazing curiously at a small cheese, "'which he turned slowly round in his hand. "'As I stepped to his side, a guard came in. "'He hastily shoved the cause of the strange behaviour into his pocket. "'When the guard had gone, he passed me a letter to read.' It was from his brother in Canada. I received your letter, all right, and am sending you a special brand of cheese. I read and understood. We waited on tiptoe until night to open the cheese. It was one of the cream cheeses so popular in Canada, no bigger than my closed hand. We gingerly unwrapped the tinfoil and broke it open. To our great joy, in the hollow heart of it, there was tucked away the tiny compass Simmons had written for from Venmoor, just before our second escape. With it were four American quarters. Not anticipating this good luck, we had exercised our ingenuity to construct a rude compass of our own out of a safety razor blade and an eyelet from my boot. It was within 15 to 20 degrees of the true north. In addition, we had a safety lamp, which one of the guards had long been looking for under the impression that he had lost it. We now had our 20 days' rations saved up and so took turns sitting up in the night, awaiting our chance. We spent two months in this watchful waiting, watching the wire and the sentries. But no opportunity offered. We took turn about, one man on watch, all night long, every night. He could not seem to watch, but must lie in his place, observing all movements in the hut, and listening carefully for any indicative noises outside. Occasionally he might step outside and ostentatiously walk about, "'as though sleepless, and, if spoken to, say that he was not well. "'But always there were the shining eyes of the watching dogs, "'growling if one came too near, "'and outside the stodgy sentries, and above all much light. "'So we determined to volunteer for work, "'figuring that they were so short of men "'that they would not lightly refuse us. "'It so happened that ten men were asked for that Saturday "'to hoe turnips on a nearby farm.' The pay was thirty pennings, or six cents a day. We volunteered and were accepted without cavil. They thought our spirits gone, and that we had accepted the inevitable. We reasoned that if we worked hard while we studied the lie of the land, we might be asked for again, and go prepared, and make a break for it. And so it fell out. We worked hard all day, at the same time impressing the topography of the country upon our minds at the close of the day we were taken to the farm for our supper of potatoes and buttermilk and then marched off to the lager four miles distant on the following monday we were ordered to go out to the same place unfortunately we could not take our store of food as its bulk would have meant our detection in addition to the equipment already mentioned i carried two packages of tobacco a shaving brush and a box of matches simmons had a terrible razor which would not shave four boxes of matches, and a small piece of soap. These were all our worldly possessions. It will be seen that, true to our British tradition, the shaving outfit constituted the most formidable part of our impedimenta. We worked all day, and so did the rain. We knocked off for supper at eight o'clock. The three guards escorted us to the farmhouse, but after locking the front door, went into an adjoining room with the farmer for their own meal. The back door was forgotten. We were famished, so fell to on the supper of buttermilk and potatoes. I finished first and strolled lazily over to the door. Besides Simmons, there were seven Frenchmen and an Englishman, all of whom were still at table and none of them aware of our plans. I carelessly opened the door and stood on the sill a moment, still pouring. Come here, Simmons, and see this. We're going to get wet before we get back. Simmons shoved his chair back and joined me we both stepped outside and gently shut the door once more we were on our way we found ourselves at the edge of the village in which the farmers hereabouts had their homes we worked our way carefully round the outskirts and made for a bit of wood a mile and a half away we were only halfway to our objective when the village bells began to ring once more the hue and cry was on when the deep baying of the dogs joined in we said attaboy cast aside all concealment and began to run for it. We reached the wood safely enough, but it turned out to be only a thin fringe of trees, offering no concealment whatever. We dashed through them. On the other side a village opened up. Back to the wedge of wood we went. A good-sized ditch with a foot or so of water in it ran along the edge of the wood. Its sides were covered with heather, which drooped far down into the water. We flung ourselves into it, after first shoving the tin-box containing our precious matches into the heather above. Pitch darkness would not come until ten o'clock. During the intervening two hours, we lay on our backs in the water, with only the smallest possible portion of our faces projecting. Once the guard jumped over the ditch less than four yards away. We suffered intensely, for although it was late August, the water was very cold when things had become quiet and daylight had passed we withdrew ourselves from the muck and after rubbing our numbed bodies to restore the circulation struck out across the country intent on shoving as much distance as possible between ourselves and the camp before another day rolled around we knew that the alarm would be out and the whole country roused with every man's hand against us we were getting used to that i for one had determined not to be taken alive this time but I certainly did not want to be put to the test. So we ploughed our way through oat and rye fields, and over and through ditches, many of them. Once we stripped our soggy clothes off to swim a river that faced us. In no place did the water come above our knees, but what it lacked in depth it made up for in coldness. We saw none of the humour in that, so we cursed it and stumbled on, two very tired men we pulled handfuls of oats and chewed dryly on them as we plunged up to our waist through the crops we reckoned that we had made thirty miles by morning and apparently had outdistanced our pursuers one night early in our pilgrimage we espied some cows in a field simmons had been a farmer in canada and so was our agricultural and stock authority here he plunged through the hedge to see if he could not capture a hatful of milk whilst I stood guard outside. I stepped into the shadow of some trees, and occasionally I could hear a guarded, sou Cow!' and then, as like as not, a muffled curse. I smiled. Two figures came hurriedly down the road. I pressed back against the hole of the tree, holding my breath. It was fairly light on the road, and to my amazement I saw two men who wore French uniforms, Also, they had heavy packs on their back. The last meant one thing, food. I rose to my feet. Comrade, one of them stopped short. The other pressed on. He muttered something under his breath, and the other broke into a trot to catch up. I edged along, trying desperately to be friendly. That made them the more timid. They would have none of me. No further word was exchanged. Just then, except for a repetition of my Comrade... I whistled softly to Simon. That alarmed them the more. They lengthened their stride, so did I mine. One said something I could not catch. They half-halted and made a brave attempt to pose as Germans, to judge by their guttural talk and brassy front. I could not explain, although I tried in the half-light to show my friendliness, and Simmons, now only a few rods away, did likewise. I endeavoured to address them in French, and could not. I tried German. That was worse, and the final result, chaos. All I can think of was Comrade. I kept on like a parrot, foolishly repeating it. All this took but a moment, and then they were gone, and we after them. So there they were, walking hurriedly, fearful of us, for Germans no doubt, and casting uneasy glances back. I followed slowly, at a loss to know what to do. "'my eyes glued on the inviting squareness of their heavy packs. "'Simmons jogged behind, endeavouring to catch up. "'The moon laughed at all four of us. "'Come on,' I said. "'Their Frenchmen will follow them. "'They have two packs on their backs. "'Grub, and maybe we can bum them for a bit.' "'Simmons needed no second invitation, "'but set out as eagerly as I in cautious pursuit. "'So fearful were we of alarming our quarry.' Our eyes were glued on their packs. Just then the road opened up into a broad expanse of heather, and there we lost them. We beat about in the heather for a long time and called loudly, but without avail. They were no doubt lying down, hiding. We found some potatoes in a field that night, dug them up with our bare hands, and ate them raw. We were very sad when we thought of those packs. It was, I remember, on the day following that we saw some of the lighter side of German life. The woods thereabouts were cut up into big blocks, as city streets are. We were laying too in one of them, thankful for the thickness of our shelter, when we heard laughing voices, and then a gust of laughter, as a flying group of girls and boys romped past. They played about for half an hour, causing us great alarm by their youthful fondness for sudden excursions into unlikely spots, after nothing in particular." the oldest of the group a sizeable boy of seventeen or thereabouts and a pretty girl of near that age hung back long after the younger children had passed on we had little to fear from them they were quite evidently engrossed in one another he argued earnestly while she listened with a half smile once he made as if to take her hand but she drew back and stiffened he ignored the rebuff a moment afterward he said something that pleased her so well that the last we saw of them, his arm was about her waist, as they went down the path together. Parniwinkle lay forty to fifty miles northeast of Bremen, which, in turn, was one hundred and fifty miles from the Holland border. We reckoned on having to walk double that in covering the stretch, and figured on twenty-one days for the trip. My diary for that day, August twenty-second, 1916, reads, Still raining, "'soaked and cold, breakfast and dinner and supper, turnips and oats. "'The night was a repetition of the preceding one, "'and made worse by the number of small swamps we had to struggle through. "'The next day's diary reads, "'Rain stopped and not so cold, fair cover, still soaked but confident. "'We had our first narrow escape that day. "'We were lying in the corner of a hedge. "'It was so misty as to give almost the effect of night.' but so long past day as to make travelling unduly dangerous. When the mist lifted, we found ourselves within fifty yards of a thickly populated village with just a narrow strip of field between. We could hear all the early morning bustle of any village, the world over. This was about three o'clock. An old man, followed by a dog, made straight for us. I had just come off the watch, which we took turn about. Simmons whistled cautiously to me, the very sound, a warning to be quiet. I looked up. The old man wandered along the hedge and stood over him for several minutes. It was very trying, but he lay motionless for fear of the dog. A blow would have sufficed for the old man. The latter remained so for a couple of minutes, standing over him, busy. The meals for that day were peas and oats. It was a slow way of making a meal. We liked the oats the best and pulled some whenever we came to them if our pockets were not already full, so that they should always be so. We ate them as we went, from the cupped hand, spilling some, and spitting out the husks of the others, which sometimes stuck in our throats, making them very raw. For August 24th the diary reads, Very hard night, crossed about five kilometres of swamps, and numerous canals. Bad accident. Clothes went to the bottom, but recovered. We are soaked as usual, and only made about eleven kilometres, Our outside town of Bremen. Cover very poor, meals for the day, nicks, still confident. The cover ranked before the food as an item of interest to us. Knowing the general direction of Bremen from the camp, and that it was much the largest town in the vicinity, we experienced no difficulty in locating it by the reflection of its lights against the sky. August 25th. More rain and cold. Hiding on the bank of the Wesser. Better going last night. Going to look for a boat tonight. River two hundred yards broad. Socks played out. Made a pair out of a shirt. Met a cow. Meals for the day. Turnips, carrots, and milk. August twenty sixth. More rain. Found boat and crossed river. Hedges grown so close and so many of them we have to go around them. Takes a lot of time. Otherwise good going. Meals for the day. Turnip, peas, and oats, met another cow, frisked her, cover none too good, trying to dry our clothes in sun, more confident. We always became more confident at the slightest semblance of warmth. The socks we made out of a shirt, which came from the clothesline of some housefrau. We made Dutch socks, in western fashion, by cutting out large diamond-shaped pieces of the cloth, which, when the foot was placed in it, folded up nicely into a sock of a kind. The cow, or rather her milk, was the greatest treat of all. It required some searching before we found a boat. We finally discovered a boat house, which we broke into, and by great good luck found inside it a boat which answered our purpose. Our chief concern was lest the owners might raise a hue and cry against the theft. However, when we reached the further shore, we gave the boat a good push out into the stream, so that if they attempted to follow our trail, they might find the boat a long ways downstream. August 27th. Rain left off, trying to dry ourselves in sun. Had a hard night, keeping clear of town. Good cover in a wood. Meals, turnips, and another obliging cow. Feel pretty sore. No socks. Still in the best otherwise. The town in question was the second one we passed after leaving Bremen. We saw the reflection of its lights in the sky, and thought that we should easily miss it. But suddenly, from some high ground, we found ourselves working directly down on the streets so close below us that we could discern people going to and fro. We turned and fled. Swinging well round to the south, we thought at last to clear the town easily, instead of which we again ended up against it, in the outskirts this time, and we repeated that disheartening performance a couple of times before we cleared the obstacle and once more swung on our way. It was such occurrences as this that disheartened us more than anything else, even the greater hardships. To labor and travail, to do the seemingly impossible night after night, and then in the snap of a finger to find all our pains, all our agony, gone for nothing, reacted on us terribly at times. On the following morning we met with our second narrow escape, under much the same circumstances as the first. We had crawled into a hedge toward the heel of the night, and rather earlier than usual on account of a thick mist which prevented us from holding to our course. When it lifted, we made out the slope of a house roof, shoving itself out of the grey fog directly in front of us. Our hedge divided two fields, in both of which labourers were already cutting the crops. In this hedge, on each side of us, were gateways so close together that when, as occasionally happened, people passed through one, we were forced to crawl up to the other to avoid detection. We had done so again when, without warning, a drover came plodding up behind his sheep. We had no time in which to go back up the hedge. The sheep crowded from the rear and overflowed at the narrow gateway into the hedge where we lay and so ran over our bodies. We remained quiet, thinking he would pass on. But what, with the frightened actions of his sheep and the yelping of the dog, his attention was inevitably attracted to the spot where we lay. He came over, looked down at us, but said nothing, and stalked on. We were uncertain as to whether he had seen us or not. Numerous incidents of a similar nature had made us overconfident. We had previously escaped detection in some very tight corners by simply lying quiet. Casual travellers had all but walked on us upon several occasions, and at night we ourselves passed many people and thought nothing of it. A moment later the shepherd walked off directly toward the laborers, glancing back over his shoulders at us as he did so. We struck out at once, before the crowd could gather. We had, at the beginning of this, our third escape, agreed not to be taken alive, "'to go through a repetition of the torture of mind and body "'which we had already undergone, and perhaps for this time worse. "'And it was understood that if one played out, the other should carry on. "'Each of us had a stout club, and could have made a tidy fight. "'Concealment was useless, and, furthermore, impossible. "'We passed close by a group of the harvesters, "'and headed for a wood that lay on the other side of them.' They could not mistake either the vermilion circles on our khaki tunics, faded though they were, nor our wild and dilapidated appearance, which was not made more reassuring by the clubs we carried. Glancing back, we saw them gathering hurriedly in little knots. We reached the wood, flung ourselves down, and watched them until dark, during which time they made no attempt to follow us. Nor did we see any sign of other pursuers though we kept on the qui vive all night, as we trudged through the interminable fields, forcing our way through tight hedges and plunging waist-deep into the water of small canals. End of chapter 16